in many ways, the sort of prices versus quantities, instrument choice, sort of the sort of economic questions we often worry about for good reason, um, frankly, take a real backseat to just the raw politics of it all. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Environmental Economics Program and our project on climate agreements. As regular listeners to this podcast surely know, I host well-informed people from academia, government, industry, and NGOs. And my guest today, Gernot Wagner fits perfectly in this group because he combines tremendous experience in academia, the NGO world, and private industry. Gernot Wagner is clinical associate professor at New York University, having previously spent time at Columbia and Harvard. Also, he's worked as an economist at the Environmental Defense Fund, as a consultant at the Boston Consulting Group, and a journalist at the Financial Times. We'll touch on all of that before we burrow in on Dr. Wagner's chief areas of interest and activity, climate change economics and climate change policy. Garnot, welcome to Environmental Insights. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. So I'm very interested to hear your impressions about climate change policy and what we can expect during the Biden years going forward. But before we talk about that, let's go back for our listeners to learn about where you've been and how you got to be where you are. And I want to start with, where did you grow up? Uh, well, my accent is from Austria. Um, that's where I grew up the first uh, 18 years of my life. So that meant primary school and what we at least call high school. Uh, yes. Um, uh, so I did spend a junior year of high school um, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, oh. That's where I um, yeah, learned English, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, then I went back, graduated from high school in Austria. And then you came to Harvard College. I did, and I believe we met First week freshman year, if memory serves. That's um, right. That's, uh, 1998, yes. So I, I'll mention here that uh, in your first week or so, you came to my class, or eventually you came <laughs> to my class, which then was a class in environmental economics and policy, and now is called climate change economics and policy, essentially. In any event, you came up to me and you said you were interested in taking the class. You were an undergraduate and you were a freshman. And I said, I'm not real. I don't think this is a good idea. And I tried to dissuade you. You were insistent. You took the course. And out of approximately 100 students, you received the highest grade in the entire class. And I've never forgotten that. <laughs> and that says something about you, Gernot. I still remember the first conversation we had. Yes. So good to meet you. Come back when you've taken some economics. Uh, but yes, that was uh, that was a fun first year. And indeed, you wound up your, your bachelor's degree. Is it joint between economics and environmental science and public policy? 
It is, yes. So that's a that's a wonderful combination um, at Harvard College. Now, uh, graduate school, um, you began at Stanford and then you came to Harvard. Can you tell us about that and what you studied? Uh, so I was supposed to get my PhD um, at Stanford. Um, I remember my very first meeting with uh, Larry Goulder there at Stanford. Mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. Thanks, uh, Professor Goulder, for um, um, getting me here. Um, I just heard, literally like half an hour before or so, that my wife got into medical school back in Boston. So, you know, great to be here, but um, I think I'm reapplying. Um, that was my very first uh, conversation there. Uh, so yes, that's what I did. So I left Stanford uh, with a master's after a year, um, had reapplied and started a PhD in political economy and government um, back east. And then you received your PhD in political economy and government from Harvard in, in what year? Uh, four years later, 2007. Okay, can, can you remind me who was on your dissertation committee? Uh, well, it was you who cheered oh, okay. it. <laughs> so, uh, yes, it was you, um, Bill Hogan, uh, Richard Zeckhauser. Um, so it was a fun um, uh, crew. Um, uh, sorry, and a fourth one, uh, Dale Jorgensen, of course, uh, uh -huh. who was the fourth. And now that uh, you mentioned that, I recall that you and your wife hosted us at your apartment, your <laughs> dissertation committee, because I can picture that group, or at least a subset of that group, with my wife and I at your apartment for dinner. I, I can still picture that too, and it happened, yeah. I, I remember this, so it was uh, you know, a week or so after my defense, uh -huh. it was the evening of me running my very first marathon, the Boston Marathon, so oh, I gosh. could barely right, walk. Uh, so, so I stuck my wife with, um, with all the work of cooking, prep work, and uh, we're still talking about that, I can tell you. I can imagine. Now, what we, tell us about your first job out of school. It was an unusual one. I remember we were quite surprised. Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I joined the editorial board of the Financial Times um, on a fellowship, um, and it was actually, I think it basically de decided the date of my dissertation defense, because I remember walking into your office saying, um, I just got a call from London, um, I got that job and they want me to start uh, in two weeks, so how does that work? <laughs> so, so yeah, so a week after we had our dinner. Um, I uh, started writing um, for the leader writer team, that's the technical term, uh -huh. um, and spent about six months or so um, in London doing that. And then, so that was 2007, and then how did you happen to go to uh, BCG, the Boston Consulting Group? Uh, so uh, that was, you know, in some sense, sort of a holding pattern, if you will, but uh, so I was um, you know, already Speaking with folks at um, EDF, um, full disclosure, it was uh, Nat Cohen, um, who was the teaching fellow in environmental economics when I took the class with you in 98. Right. Um, so um, I was his first hire um, at EDF. He had just joined a couple of years or a year prior. Um, but it sort of... It, took a while to, to make that happen. So I, I, so I spent 10 months at uh, BCG, Boston Consulting Group, and then in 2008, um, 
eight, uh, Joe and DDF. And I should mention that Nat Cohane has been a previous guest here. And as many of our listeners will know, and as I'm sure you know, Gernot, it was just announced that uh, he will be the next president of C2ES, formerly the Pew Center on Climate Change. That's correct, yes. And uh, yes, so it's pretty amazing to, I guess, have uh, both you and him uh, teach me um, almost all I know on environmental economics. And basically, so I've, I guess, I'd like to think been following Nat around for a bit after, but um, I guess we overlapped at EDF for maybe six or so of my eight years there with two, two of his years at the White House, just to be clear. So right. he was <laughs> and I should say that one of the things and one of the joys of uh, being a professor is that when you work with PhD students, the learning is in two directions. So, you know, sometimes one teaches students either through advising or in classes, but one learns a tremendous amount both in terms of the dissertation work, but then subsequently, and I have continued to learn from you. And in a moment, I want to get to two of your books. Before we do that, though, I want to finish this chronology. Um, so tell us about your EDF. You were there for quite a while. I was there for a bit over eight years. So, um, yes, yeah, so I, I joined as an economist. I left as a lead senior economist in... Um, 2008 um, to 2016. 2016 is my that's guess. right. Yes, yeah. of course. Yes. So EDF is in many ways this you know, uh, unique environmental organization, um, especially when it comes to environmental um, economics. Um, so the first enviro environmental NGO to have hired a PhD in economics you know, in the 70s, long before uh, my time. You, of course, have. Mm -hmm. um, has worked with them yes. um, also before my time. Um, and then, um, so the, the last 10, 15 years or so, was this real effort to uh, build this office of the chief economist, or what is now not called the office of the um, chief economist. And yeah, to you know, bring insights from economics to uh, climate environmental policy. So is that the position that Susie Kerr now occupies? Correct, yes. Yeah. Another one of your students. That's yes, right. Uh, that's right. Who is not a chief <laughs> economist. Yes, exactly. From, so from EDF, you came to Harvard. So um, working with uh, the Solar Geoengineering Research Program with Professor David Keith, who actually is a, also a previous guest on this podcast. Tell us about that work. So I guess it started technically, uh, the origin story, I guess, um, is um, the day the Paris Climate Agreement was gaveled into um, existence um, mm -hmm. in December of 2015. <laughs> I remember right around the same time uh, that David, David Keith, was uh, in my living room in Cambridge. Um, we had already been there at the time. Um, and we sh um, basically shook hands on um, uh, starting this um, solar uh, geoengineering research program or what turned into mm -hmm. Harvard's solar geoengineering research program. Um, so yeah, solar geoengineering, um, it's um, yeah, lots of things to lots of different uh, people, um, but it is uh, essentially an attempt uh, to uh, affect the albedo, the brightness of the planet, of planet Earth, um, through deliberate intervention, um, 
Now, you know, the, the research, of course, is important here, right? So, you know, nobody is doing this. Um, um, right now, the you know, chemtrails conspiracy theory is notwithstanding. Um, but um, I certainly believe, uh, David Keith, of course, believes strongly too, um, that uh, it is time to... Um, do concerted research on right. this topic, and you know, by now I'm happy to say the National Academies agree. Right? Yes, uh, months yes. or so ago, uh, blue ribbon panel on this. Um, so yes, in 2016 we um, set out to start this um, research program. Um, and you played a, you played an important role as the executive director of the program. So right? I was yes, so the uh, founding executive director. I think my CV says uh, right now a founding co-director. I guess uh, so. Um, and yes, yeah, so it was um, you know a couple of years of uh, institution building, fundraising, mm-hmm. if you will, um, and then uh, I spent a total of four years um, at Harvard uh, that time around. So and then you moved to um, New York University. And now I am, um, I guess in some sense, I've been following uh, Siri, uh, my wife. Uh, So I said when I was already in Cambridge, so um, after um, residency fellowship uh, in New York, um, Siri uh, uh, started her first job out of fellowship, was at Harvard Medical School. Mm -hmm. Um, So I moved um, part of my EDF team at the time to the EDF Boston office. Um, Yes. You know, yeah. living in Cambridge, Harvard Square, sort of back to the roots. Um, yeah. And um, then, you know, after a couple of years of, of that and still teaching at Columbia, uh, so, you know, bike ride to the Red Line, Red Line to um, South Station, Acela to New York, bike up to Columbia and everything in reverse, right, once a week, um, I finally decided to, uh, to cut my New York ties somewhat. And... Um, then started this um, uh, my work at, at Harvard, um, and um, yes, then four years later, so NYU really, really wanted uh, my wife, Siri, um, the NYU Medical School, uh, so I am, I guess I'm the plus one here, um, when I joined faculty, well, in, a, in a faculty position, but um, um, thanks to Siri, um, uh, I moved back to, we moved back to New York. So let's turn now to substance, and I want to do that first by way of two of your books, of others, that I'm familiar with. Um, In your 2011 book, But Will the Planet Notice? How Smart Economics Can Save the World, my recollection, which may be faulty, my recollection is that one of the messages in the book was that well-intentioned individual voluntary behavior would not be a very effective means of addressing climate change. C- can you elaborate on that for us? A uh, great recollection, because yes, that right in many ways is, uh, you know, I guess it's, uh, you know, it's econ 101, or in some sense, it's you know my attempt of translating some of the core messages uh, the book is um, into English. Uh, German accented English, but English nonetheless. Um, and frankly, one of these lessons, in fact, of course, is right, that individual action, um, however well intended, um, doesn't do it all. Right? So um, uh, I think I remember my book bio, it's something along the lines of, uh, you know, the author, uh, so-and-so, um, he doesn't eat meat, doesn't drive, 
and knows full well the futility of his personal choices. Why would you say that those kinds of personal choices for others as well are futile? What, what's the, the and briefly, what's the basic reasoning behind that? It takes policy. Right. Mm -hmm. That's that's really it. Right. So, you know, incentives work. Right. So mm -hmm. if there's one thing we have in economics, um, you know, the law of compensated demand, in fact, is a law for a good reason. Right. Price up, quantity demanded down works, works every single time, or at least at the couple exceptions we know of, CO2 isn't one of them. Um, and actually, I remember when the book came out, um, I wrote um, a, um, a New York Times um, op-ed, which, you know, I was an economist at EDF at the time. Mm -hmm. um, the title was Going Green But Getting Nowhere. I remember right? that. So yeah. it was this fairly, you know, it, uh, it went viral, I guess, you know, as, uh, 10 years ago. Um, and uh, it was the sort of, um, uh, you know, statement, you know, you recycle, you do all the right things, right? Good job. Um, but no, you're not saving the planet with these choices, with these individual choices, which, you know, just to be clear, right, doesn't mean uh, you shouldn't be doing them, right? Doesn't mean you shouldn't act morally, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm still vegetarian. I still don't have a driver's license. I've never driven in my life, right? Now, you know, that's, you know, for lots of other reasons, too, of course, right? Don't need a car, never needed one, live in a city. Um, but uh, there is a lot more, of course, to environmental climate policy, um, the real change that we all know is necessary, then relying on individual action. Now that takes us to the other book of yours, much more recent, that I wanted to raise with you, which is your 2015 book with the late, great Harvard professor Martin Weitzman, Climate Shock, The Economic Consequences of a Harvard Planet. You know, Gernot, I suspect that we could spend our entire time today talking about Marty's contributions to economics, as in fact you and I are doing together in a forthcoming book chapter and a forthcoming article. Instead, I wonder if you'd be willing to take just a few minutes to share a highlight, one highlight of your many wonderful memories of Marty Weitzman, whether it's a personal one or it's one in terms of substance on climate change or economics? I guess maybe the best one might be to go back to um, September 17th, 1998, uh, mm -hmm. freshman year once again. That's the same week I met you. I think it was yeah. uh, on Tuesday or so we met, uh, to a Wednesday in your office hours. Um, and um, I went, met Ma Marty on uh, Thursday that week. Now, you know, this is uh, very personal now, but there's a couple other reasons I remember that day. Um, I met my wife that day, my now wife, for, you know, first time in the same room together, rather. Um, and that was when uh, Kofi Annan gave a talk at Harvard that day. So, of course, uh, our now 10-year-old um, is called Annan. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know, quite a bit happened that week or that day, especially then. Um, but I remember almost missing the um, Kofi Annan um, lecture uh, because I spent um, what turned into an entire hour um, with Marty um, mm. in his office, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, same situation, right? 18-year-old freshman, right? Knocks on Harvard Prof's door and, um, 
you know, asks what it takes to become an environmental economist. Um, and I remember Marty sitting me down and, um, you know, first of all, taking me seriously, right? <laughs> Which, um, you know, frankly, much like you did, right? You, you, uh, you, you did try to dissuade me from taking your class, but, you know, then I ended up uh, taking it um, the, uh, later that year. Um, but Marty sort of sat me down and guided me through maybe in an attempt at dissuading me, frankly, of, of wanting to become an environmental economist or academic, mm-hmm. uh, guiding me through what it takes. Um, and what that meant was this famous paper, um, 1974, Prices versus Quantities, right? sort of instrument choice. Should you be taxing CO2 or other pollution uh, pollutants, or should you be capping them, limiting the quantity, emissions trading, cap and trade system? Um, and he found this ingenious, very simple um, equation, right, as, as you know well, of course, but it took a while to get there. And what he explained to me right then and there in his, in his office, right, with his number two pencil, a yellow legal pad, he, you know, sort of guided me through the derivation, of course, most of that went over my head, all of it went over my head, uh, but then he sort of taught me what research meant, right? You search and you search and you search again. And how his first attempt was rejected and um, uh, it was focused on sort of planned economy, how to to run the Soviet economy, right? Um, And, uh, you know, important question at the time, um, but his first submission uh, met a rejection. Um, And, you know, as one of his you know, one of his anonymous re- reviewers um, referees uh, told him, well, why wouldn't you consider this emerging set of problems um, environmental problems, um, where sort of these same questions arise? Uh, your paper might have a bit more of an impact if you did that. Um, well. You know, a few decades later, we know that it had an enormous impact. That's exactly what Marty did. He he rewrote. Um, the paper, in a sense, to um, aim it at the you know, emerging pollution problems. Um, and uh, this prices versus quantities idea is still, to this day, uh, one of the main um, questions in environmental economics. I, th- I, think it re- I think that paper actually remains the most frequently cited article in environmental economics by most of the measures that one can come up with. It's It's... Truly astounding, a paper from 1974. But I want to bring you up to the present. I'm going to fast forward from your freshman year at Harvard to this year of 2021 and talk about climate change policy with you, Gernot. Um, I mean, on January 20th, as you know, as our listeners know, President Biden launched the process of rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement and on February 19th, the United States, again, became a party to the agreement. You know, I frequently said that that was the easy part. The hard part now is coming up with a credible set of policies to achieve the administration's announced nationally determined contribution, or NDC, which is, of course, a 50 to 52 percent reduction of emissions below the 2005 level by the year 2030. Is, is, is that feasible? Can it, can it be done by this administration? 
or subsequent ones? Great question. <laughs> I wished I knew um, uh, the definitive answer. Um, and when I say, right, is it feasible? So to be clear, right, is, would it be technically feasible? Of course. Yes. We know that. We've known that for a while. So let's take them in order. Technically, yes. Yes. Next, I want to know about economically. And third, I want to know about politically. That's, of course, ex exactly the right sequence, right? Um, and, you know, economically, yes. Now, right, is it going to be free? No, of course not. It costs money. Is it, you know, is it worth it? Yes, absolutely. Especially, of course, um, given that there is an enormous cost of uh, inaction, of not mm -hmm. acting, right? The social cost of carbon um, is, in fact, an important uh, tool concept to calculate the cost of inaction here, um, or for the matter, the benefits of action. So, yes, right, would, uh, would um, any of this pass a standard benefit-cost um, test? Yes. So, yes, economics to that economics. Um, now, of course, the real question, of course, is um, politics. I'd like to think I can make a, a, a cogent argument for why it will happen, and this administration is uniquely positioned to make it happen, and the approach it takes um, seems to be on the right path. Um, or, of course, the exact inverse, right? The exact opposite. Um, like, it doesn't seem like uh, much is happening uh, legislatively, uh, much beyond, um, you know, amazing proposals, if you will, on the one hand. Um, but frankly, even there, of course, right? So there are certain things on a wish list of any climate environmental economist that have not made it on um, the administration's agenda. But frankly, even there, and... Um, as, as much as I, uh, we both like you know, Marty Weitzman's insights in all of this, I think uh, in many ways the sort of prices versus quantities, instrument choice, sort of the sort of economic questions we often worry about for good reason, um, frankly take a real backseat to just the raw politics of it all. Well, certainly carbon pricing is not an approach, either carbon tax or cap and trade is not an approach that the Biden administration um, is favoring uh, at this point. Correct. Yeah. They're, they're putting most of their eggs in the basket of the infrastructure bill. And the one part of that, in addition to lots of subsidies um, for a wide variety of things from electric vehicle charging stations to lots else, but one part of it that looks like um, a more conventional policy, a regulatory policy as opposed to subsidies, is the clean electricity standard, the CES. Yep. And even there, um, there's a political issue, which is not just the one of Democrats in favor, Republicans opposed in the Senate, but rather even in the House of Representatives is the fact that so-called progressive Democrats want a CES that is essentially a renewable electricity standard that is excluding nuclear, excluding carbon capture and storage, excluding possibly some other things. Whereas the Biden White House people who seem to be more pragmatic want to include all of that. What's your view of that? Now we're down to the politics. I guess, uh, I guess maybe let me say two things. And you know, the first one, um, 
uh, might be a bit surprising to you as um, you know having taught me uh, some or most of of this but um, I would say this distinction between right, carbon pricing that economists would say is the right way to go carbon tax cap and trade um, and uh, renewable portfolio standards clean electricity standard and so on um, in many ways is a bit artificial or you know linguistic if you will or of course politics right so 30 states as you know plus the district of columbia right have renewable portfolio standards um some you know fairly weak ones that include uh, you know natural gas let's say as part of the mm -hmm. the mix even without carbon capture and storage and um so there's you know differences of course uh, that said there are several that have um real um uh, you know binding binding targets right so new mexico a hundred percent by 2045 new york state a hundred percent renewable energy standard uh, renewable portfolio standard um now you know it's a standard that's in the name sure um but well there is a tradable permit aspect to it yeah. too right yeah. um so you know it's a cap and trade system right it's uh it's an emissions mark now it, it, it's close to one now it's not it's a tradable it, performance standard like the system that's being launched in china there are you know the devil is in the detail as so often but you know up to a first approximation um mm. we can you know we can calculate the shadow price the price of what it costs to implement a system like this and you know some of our colleagues have done that. And I'm thinking of a Michael Greenstone paper that analyzes the renewable portfolio uh, standards. Mm -hmm. right. um, I'd come up with a cost of somewhere between 60 and uh, $300 per ton of CO2 equivalent, right? Which basically, right, it, it, like you said, right, it's close. It's not, it's not a cap and trade system for emissions. It just isn't. Um, but it establishes a carbon price. Mm -hmm. Right, it does. Right, so um, when you now line up these different policies um, by their relative strength, and of course that price per ton of CO two is precisely the proxy you would want. Right, coverage of course matters a lot, but then under what is covered, it's that price that matters. Um, right, so uh, what I often like to talk about, in, uh, especially in my columns, right, so the, you know, the Exxon supported $50 per ton of CO2 uh, carbon tax, right, supported in exchange for regulatory preemption, right, getting rid of, mm -hmm. you know, any and all right. uh, regulations for stationary um, sources. You know, that's a carbon price, sure. It's at the low end, as you would expect, 50 bucks. Um, renewable portfolio standards, RPS, or what the Biden administration now proposes, or what right, progressives in, in the House want. Well, same thing. Now, presumably, right, the progressives in the House want something that has a higher price equivalent. Uh, Biden administration might be slightly less ambitious on that front. All of it is still much more ambitious than the, right, quote-unquote, simple $50 per ton of CO2 um, carbon tax. Although we should and be fair that the, the $50 a ton is in fact what is the interim estimate from the, from the current administration for the so-called social cost of carbon, meaning what are the marginal damages or marginal benefits of action. I think it's likely 
uh, and I think you you would agree, and I think you I think you've written about I, this I that have, the yes. <laughs> that the eventual result of this task force that's set up for the next year will probably be they'll probably lower the discount rate to two percent from three percent. They'll come up with a hundred dollars or even more than that yes. per ton. You know that's likely. But I, I want to turn to something else with you because we're going to run out of time, and you're a young guy, and I'm not. So I want to get the benefits of your insights on something that I wonder about. And that is some something that's just really striking, mainly in the year 2019, and then on a hiatus perhaps during the pandemic, but I think we'll see come back, mm -hmm. is this remarkable set of youth movements of climate activism, both in Europe and the United States. And if you could just say briefly, what's your reaction to those youth movements? Um, well, first, you know, somewhat controversial reaction, if you will, is thank you, Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Right. So this, in many ways, right, is a you know the pendulum swinging hard um, back in the other direction. Um, it's you know it's amazing to see. Um, of course, uh, you know I'm I'm not that young. <laughs> turns out, um, well, it's all relative. I, but, but yeah, it's yeah, it's all relative. I guess <laughs> I've been I think I've been married for longer now by now than um, you know the first eighteen years of my life. So yes, I have nineteen years of marriage. So uh, so okay, fair. But uh, but yes, all right. So you know, great. Of course, all right. Um, now uh, you know they are too not to you know get back to the, the, the carbon pricing conversation necessarily, but, right, um, well, first of all, you know, let's say you know, Greta Thunberg, right, if anyone, right, understands that it's about policy, not individual action. Um, so that's, you know, point one, and it's important. Um, and now we are back to, right, what should this movement push for? Um, and frankly, now we are back to the raw politics of it all, right? It's very, very um, difficult to see, right? The one simple uh, law that will just solve it all, right? That basically doesn't exist. It exists in theory, maybe, not in practice. Um, and frankly, what is happening now, right? What we do see is amazing action um, in the right direction on a whole lot of different Dimension, right? So, you know, not too long ago, uh, a you know a hedge fund holding zero point zero two percent of stock in Exxon Mobil uh, convinced a majority of shareholders to vote for you know activists on uh, to join the board of Exxon. Um, an amazing change, right? So, you know, are, are those two. Um, um, you know, pro-climate votes, if you will, on the board of Exxon going to change everything? Of course not. Among a dozen board members, right? Um, they, they, it won't change at all. Um, that said, um, you know, that change was significant. Uh, you know, as economists, we, we, we know that money talks. Uh, $65 million plus that went into this fight, the proxy fight, um, on who to vote for, right? Yeah. It is indeed a, a substantial moment. I mean, it's early before we'll be able to say whether or not this presages other such changes. We've seen action also at Chevron and at yep. Shell in Europe, mm -hmm. but it's early to say. That's a topic that's going to have to be, alas, for another day. <laughs> so I'm just going to have to say we're going to have to end with that. And thank you very much, Gernot, for taking time 
to join us today. Thank you. Thanks again to our guest, Gernot Wagner. He's clinical associate professor at New York University and former staff economist at the Environmental Defense Fund. Please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, conversations on policy and practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.